We're continuing in our series on the Psalms, songs for our season, because the book of Psalms deals with our hearts. It gets us to the heart of the matter. Psalms is really a book of counseling for every season and issue of life for God's people. It meets us in all the different forms of our brokenness and points us to the hope that we have in Jesus. And so this morning, Psalm 48 the city of our God, we see that God is a, a builder. God is a builder and a doer. This reminds me of just about every time I walk into my youngest daughter Violet's room. She is a little builder, a little doer, a little mini engineer, and she always has some thing that she's building. And she, I love it because I'm old and crusty and curmudgeonly, and, you know, we've all been kind of like beat down by the world. And here's my daughter with, you know, Legos and everything you can imagine creating worlds. She's like Inception on steroids. I mean, she is building worlds out of nothing. I'm just trying not to step on something sharp that's going to penetrate my foot again. But Violet and so many of our children and, you know, I know that there's folks who came with kiddos today. We've seen this in our kids just the bright life of creativity and building and doing, creating worlds. And their ideas and their minds and their little character is reflected in the things that they build. So it is with God. His character and his purpose are reflected in his people gathered to form a place, a new nation, a city, a city that is breaking into earth in all cities. It's not Western. It's not American. It doesn't have to speak English. It's global. It's the hope of the nations. And as we gather every Sunday morning, it's us. God is a builder and a doer, and he will gather his people. And cities are beautiful, but as we know, they're beautifully broken. And so this is a word that I think that we need right now from Psalm 48 as we Perhaps look around our own city, we see injustice. We see things as they should not be. We see folks who are broken and downtrodden. Perhaps we can even see systems that would keep them that way to some extent or not. As we look around our country, we see cities divided, people divided. And we have a great temptation, I think I do at least. You might be more spiritual than me, undoubtedly. But there's a great temptation not to run to the city of God and its promises, but to try to tinker with and control and find comfort and security in the city of man. And to elevate men instead of God. And to praise men instead of God. So much of this is born out of our fears and worries, many of which are justified. Will our cities stand? Those things are extrinsic to us, but there are internal concerns as well. For you yourself are a city, as it were, heart, mind, soul, and strength, something that God is building. And so will our city stand out there is reflexive of a question we can ask of ourselves. Will, will we stand? Will our faith endure? Will our enemies fall? Will our hope remain alive? And so really the heart question of Psalm 48 the heart question of Psalm 48, which is a song of praise about the city of God to God himself. But what gets to the heart is this. The question that you and I ask all the time. 
when the hard things come? Will God keep me safe? Will God keep me safe? Is he building something that will keep me safe? Will his promises stand? Now, on the one hand, we need to hear that as a constructive critique of the false gods and idols and cities that we run to. But not only that, we need to hear it as a comfort. Psalm 48 isn't meant to, you know, bring you to church and beat you up with a healthy sense of guilt and then pass the plate. Psalm 48 instead is meant to comfort us, to lift up our heads from our circumstances around us and from what's inside so that we neither focus on the problems out there nor navel gaze on our own, but instead God lifts our head in Isaiah 40 fashion. Comfort, comfort my people. I am the king. I'm building my city, and it will stand forever. This all gets to the root, doesn't it? Of the injustice that we see, and also the ways that we try to justify ourselves. Of the problems outside, out there, with those people who are other, but also the deeply boiling and broiling things inside of us that that sometimes it feels like we can't quite get a handle on. The things inside or outside that you and I might say, it shouldn't be that way. It wasn't meant to be this way. That's not how God created the world. He made it. He made it good. This is wrong. Which brings us to a second question related to, will God keep me safe in his city? And that is this. Not only will God keep me safe, but is it worth trying? Is it worth trying out there? Because that can be pretty exhausting. Not only will God keep me safe, but will he build something better? To these two questions, Psalm 48 is a resounding yes. Thank God we are simultaneously exposed. Our need is shown, it's laid bare, fully known before the holy king of the universe, and fully loved, fully comforted by the promises of his word. And so the main point of Psalm 48 that gets to those heart issues is this. Let us then, as God's people, let us praise the God who provides the city. Let us praise the God who provides the city because in doing that, we don't just get a better city, we get God. We get a better everything. The psalm shows us three reasons that we should do that. I know you're shocked that there's only three, but three reasons that we should praise the God who provides the city. The first is this, Psalm 48 shows us that we praise God for his presence among us. God is a builder and a doer. He creates worlds. He takes what is dead. He makes it alive. He takes the one who was once lost. They are now found. They were blind and they see. But the reason the city is glorious isn't because it's filled with the redeemed. It's because the Redeemer himself lives there to continue to sustain and uphold the redeemed as they walk about their lives, normal lives, with ups and downs. The city is glorious because the king has his residence there. This is what makes the city great. Not chariots, not horses, not any earthly powers or pleasures, but as the psalm says, God has made himself known. That's what's unique and wonderful about the church. Not that we come to, you know, rehearse a list of truths 
or, or to get a new list of principles so that if you do these 10 things, you can go out and, you know, be, live your best life now. Those are all good things. Don't get me wrong. But what's unique about this place is that God is present here. By his Holy Spirit, through his word, all the promises of Jesus are yes and amen to us in this place as we gather to say, I believe, help my unbelief. And his presence isn't abstract. It's personal. So whatever your heartbrokenness is for the city or cities or inside your own city, God knows. And he cares. And he's come to do something about it which isn't to give you a list of things that you should believe to know things about him, but actually to be with you, to sit next to you, to be personally present with you. The psalm shows us two ways. First of all, by his power. So even though the nations rage, and even though you watch the news, and we all wonder what's going to happen, God is in his city, present by his power, elevated and holy. The king is on his throne. And nothing will thwart his plan for the world. But also by his promises. Because this isn't just a city where God shows off his power, but where God shows off his power through the extent of his mercy. And that's one thing I love about the church. The new Jerusalem, the new city of God. It's not just a place for those who have it all together or are successful or know the secret knock or the handshake or wear the funny hat. Instead, this city is a city of mercy for all people to be welcome into this place, to hear that there is actually good news that is not fake news, and it's Jesus Christ. Again, that's why we gather every Sunday. Uh, I've been to Israel. Some of you have as well. The city of Jerusalem is a beautiful city. It's a very impressive city, a very historic city. But I'm here to stand with Jesus, Paul, Peter, the other apostles, the New Testament, and 2,000 years of our history to let you know that the new city, the new Jerusalem, the new Zion, isn't in a specific place and point in time. It doesn't speak a specific language. It's not a specific geopolitical ethnic region bound by the finite limitations of geography. It is actually the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. The new city is every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And that's what makes God look really, really glorious. Now, Tim Keller puts it this way. He said, in the entire duration of the Old Testament, from prophets to priests, Jerusalem never fully fulfilled its promises to draw in all the nations. Indeed, given the limitations of geography, language, etc., how could it? But yet God promised these things. The early church writers show us that God has kept that promise. We think especially of the nations hearing the gospel in their own language at Pentecost. And so we see now a gospel of complete geopolitical and ethnic inclusion that has been reaching the globe for the last 2,000 years or so. It's appropriate then that we ask the question, are our churches doing that today? Have they become monochromatic and homogenous? And if so, are we being the Zion that God has called us to be? Let us remember that John's revelation doesn't say that before the throne one day, all humans, abstract, will stand. 
but instead differentiated tribes, tongues, and nations, all united under the one thing that could bring them together, the love of God in Jesus, his son. So we praise God for his presence among us. That is what makes the city great. And yet the psalm has a caution. The psalm has a caution. A caution about other cities, other mountains, siren songs. And we see it in the verse in the ESV that talks about the far north. Verse 2, you might want to look at that really quick. Mount Zion in the far north. Now, the NIV translates this differently, as do many other translations. And all the commentaries I read this week agreed with this point. And, and so I think this is right. That the psalmist is trying to draw a comparison here and give us a caution. In the NIV, instead of far north, we get this word zaphon. Z-A-P-H-O-N. Zaphon was a different city, a different mountain, also elevated, a different option. The point the psalmist is making here is we must choose. This mountain also belonged to a god, one that you've heard of, Baal or Baal, depending on how you pronounce it. So the psalmist here is saying we praise God for his presence among us in this city, but realize that there are other things on offer here, so be careful. Because if you go to the mountain of Zaphon to worship at the feet of Baal, it's a little bit different than the personal presence of the mercy of King Jesus. Instead, it's feed me. I need, I need, I need. If you do this, then I might do that. I'm Baal, basically ancient Near Eastern Zeus. And if I'm feeling good today and you ask me for something, I might bless you with crops or mm, I might come down and take a granddaughter if she's looking good. Depends how I feel on Tuesday. Whereas the city of God resounds with an emphatic, it is finished and I will do it. The mountain of Zaphon is only the mumbling of Baal saying, maybe, if you're good enough, if you do the right religious things. And so Psalm 48, in the same moment, it beckons us to praise the Lord who is great and greatly to be praised. It says we must choose. We can't serve two masters. We can't serve God and mammon. It's either God's city or man's. It's either the presence of God or the little gifts and presents that the world would throw at our feet as breadcrumbs. It's either God is the end himself or we make false gods a means to our end. As a result of this, which is a bit harrowing for me to hear and say out loud, because I do it too, guess what? We come to the second point, that we praise God for his protection. We praise God for his protection because he's not blind to the temptation that we all feel to love the city of man and go to the mountain of Zaphon to Baal. He knows our enemies. He knows our needs. So Psalm 48 says that the kings of the earth assemble, right? This coalition of Gentile kings, they come together because they're going to come and take and sack the city of Jerusalem. They even bring out their big ships. We're told they sail from Tarshish. So it's it's thought that these ships had to be the sort of ships that could go a long distance. They're naval ships. They're warships. The kings of the earth come with everything they've got, and what happens? They're thwarted. And we get this beautiful Hebrew poetic device you find all throughout the Psalms, uh, parallelism. No less than six words in three parallels that show us just how deeply the nations in their attempts were crushed. They were astounded. They panic. They take flight. They tremble. There's anguish. 
and even their ships are shattered. The invitation here to you and to me as it was to Israel's to behold your own history. To behold your own history. When it seems like the cities are failing, when it feels like you're failing in here, remember. Remember what God has done. These are people who have not only heard, but they've seen. And so Psalm 48 begs of us the question, how have you seen God's faithfulness in your own life? Friends, this is the only story we have to tell. When you tell people about the love of Jesus and you want them to come to know the Lord, it's not like, oh, come to Jesus, he made me rich. Come to Jesus, he he solved all my problems in my life, I don't have any more problems. No, come to Jesus because he's been faithful to me in everything. He's never let me go. He's never forsaken me. He's never abandoned me. You know, I've pursued all these other things. It's never enough. Degrees and money and all these other identities, they're not bad, but they're not enough. They're not bad, but they're not God. So come and hear the story of God who has been faithful to me, who showed me everything that was true about my soul that I was way too scared to ever say in front of anyone. He knew it all. He showed it all to me, and then he loved me and was faithful to me as his child, day in and day out. The kings assemble, but they are thwarted. And so the psalm points out to us that there is an enemy. The king's outside of us, but there's an enemy within too. And we see this in verse 8 where the psalmist prays for the city to be established. You see, I think we can be in danger, and I say this to myself. But mm, I really think we can be in danger in 2020, in the days of such decadence. I think we can be in danger with having a personal relationship with the church and God's city and the way that I like it. You know, this is my favorite song and pastor and pew and the way that it just fits into my lifestyle. We can be in danger of having a personal relationship with that and not Jesus. And that's why the psalmist says, establish the real city. Don't let us love the trappings and the things and the building and the service times and the favorite song more than we love Jesus himself. Because the psalm tells us that Zion endures forever, but, but also that Israel, that the children of God, can't be presumptuous about that. It's always been their problem. God makes his promises and then we're prone to abuse them. That's why in Romans, right, the Apostle Paul says, look, if God's grace is this good, that's awesome. Well, shall we, know, shall we now go about and abuse this grace? By no means. By no means. D.A. Carson put it this way. He's a New Testament scholar. I, I sort of like this. This is in regard to us not being presumptuous about the promises of God to protect us, but instead humbly relying. He says, look, what one generation deeply believes If the next generation merely assumes, the the third is bound to deny. What one generation deeply believes, if the next merely assumes, presumes, takes for granted, the third will surely deny. So we praise God for his presence and for his protection, but it's that very protection that causes us to repent from our presumption. And when I say repent, which is kind of a big, weird, scary church word, it's not a bad thing. Because listen, we're we're turning away from the stuff that doesn't satisfy. But turning away always implies turning to. 
And so this brings us to our third point. As we repent, as we turn, family, as we put down the idols of the city of man and praise the city of God, we repent into something. We repent toward the face of Jesus. We praise God for his praiseworthy love, his presence among us, his protection, and as we repent into his praiseworthy love. Verse 9 says that this city has reach that it's going somewhere, that God has a purpose in this story being told to the nations. What is the reach of the city in verse 9? It's simple. Ordinary citizens like you and me who have been shaped by grace. You know what doesn't make the church special? Superhuman people who have no issues. Because I know a lot of y'all's issues and there's some special people up in here. And I fit right in. And we got people, it's a hospital, so we got broken people, we got people in PT, we got people all across the board, we've got hypocrites, and you know what, Santa Fe? We've got room for more. So all are welcome. That's not what makes the church special. Our money, our towers, our success. That's not what makes this city special. Is it our food? No, maybe for the Baptists and the potlucks, but not for us. It's not our food. Is it our music? Is it our, you know, is it our location? These aren't the things that make the church special. I'll tell you what makes the church special. Aliens. Aliens. Aliens are what make the church special. Because we have, according to Psalm 48, a righteousness that comes from God. Righteousness is to be translated as covenant justice. What that means is that God has done something for you and for me that is outside of us, that is given to us for free, that is proclaimed over us, and that's the only thing that sets us apart. And therefore makes us aliens and strangers in this world, not to hate the world, not to worship the world, but to be in it and not of it, redeeming it as God has already done for us. We see the only thing that makes us a true city different in verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love. Now, this word steadfast love is incredible. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Steadfast love, promise-making and promise-keeping love. H-E-S-E-D, hesed, steadfast love. This is the thing. It's the only thing we've got. And friends, if Psalm 48 wants to show us something, it's that this love is surprising. It's radical. It's not the kind of love that we can control In fact, it's the kind of love that really pushes back on our religiousness and rules and organization and power and control and judgment. There's a story that I think can illustrate this and I'll just tell you, it's it's a little spicy. Can you handle it? Santa Fe? It's written by a guy named Paul Zoll. It's part of a New York based ministry called Mockingbird, and the title of this short story is a true, radical, and more than a little scatological, scatological story about forgiveness. At a boarding school for troubled boys in upstate New York, something terrible happened. Hmm. One of these young boys, a troubled teen, decided that he would go ahead and play a joke. He defecated in a trash can and then proceeded to smear the contents all over the walls of one of the living rooms. Not exactly a beautified city. 
Therefore, an assembly was called and the headmaster, after voicing how upset he was about the incident, told the group of young men that they were going to sit there and wait for a confession. They sat for a long 15 minutes, which for teenage boys is like nine years. And then finally, a student stood up and said, I know who did it. And if he doesn't confess soon, I'm going to tell on him. A silence fell over the crowd. And finally, a boy stood up and came forward. I did it, he said, with an air of indignance and not all that apologetically. And yet his tears began to well up in his eyes as all the other boys looked on as he felt the weight of the consequences of, an act, of his actions. It was at that very moment, in perfect Luke 15, prodigal son, while the son was still off fashion, the headmaster embraced the boy with a mountainous hug. And he said, son, my son, I'm proud of you for coming forward. And I want to tell you something very important. In that moment, the boy waited to hear what his sentence would be, but he was surprised by grace. You are forgiven. The headmaster dismissed the assembly and led the culprit with him back to the scene of the incident. Surely, the boy thought, at this time I will be able to make reparations and make things right for my foolishness. But it was in this very moment that the principal had the boy sit in a chair facing the soiled wall with his hands on his lap. The principal himself got down on his knees wearing suit and tie and painstakingly cleaned up the mess all by himself while the boy sat there watching, silent and astounded by such mercy. This is a picture of the gospel. This is why we praise God in Psalm 48. This is why the king is great and greatly to be praised. This is the only thing that makes the city of God unique. Because our sin is gross and is as messy as that soiled wall. And yet Jesus does it all. He includes, he embraces, he speaks forgiveness, but more. He actually goes and deals with the mess himself at the cost of his own cleanliness. So Psalm 48 shows us that in this way, God is building a new thing, not for those who already have it right, but for those who need to be rescued. This is the kingdom flipped up on its head. This week in the prayer meeting, John quoted Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul quotes one of the old Psalms, but he misquotes it. What's he doing? He's not misquoting it. He's perfectly interpreting it. The old psalm said the king in his city would sit on his throne and receive gifts. You know what Paul says in Ephesians 4? Of the children of God, of you and me? He says, now that Jesus has come, now that the work of the cross of the king is complete, now this is a city where the king gives gifts. That is what the Lord is doing as the city of God breaks into and penetrates all the city of men around the world. And so we end with this. Psalm 48 invites us to invite others, to invite others, to invite us, and to keep inviting and keep telling to come and see. Come inspect the city. Again, twofold here. On the one hand, it's conviction. 
Is our church a city of God that we would want people to come and see? Come see diverse people who should have nothing in common except for Jesus. In this oh-so-polarized age, so polarized, and if you say the wrong thing, I'm going to cancel you, you cancel me, great, we're both canceled, leave me alone. We can't get along. This generation, that. This generation, this. Older people, younger people, rich people, poor people. This political party, that political party. We are so polarized. Is this a church where people would come in of any tribe, tongue, or nation and go, whoa, this is different. What's going on here? What do all these weird, different people have in common? Except the one thing that could possibly unite them. So in this way, the city of God invites us to kind of be like El Dorado, the city of gold. We sang about it earlier. We read about it in Revelation 21, a city of pure gold. That's what I want this church to be. That's what God is doing here. Let's be like El Dorado. Let's be like the place where the downtrodden and the poor, the orphan, the fatherless, the widow, the traumatized, the one who has stuff and baggage in their past that they can't even begin to unearth because of how painful it is, that they come into this place and go, I found it. I found the city of gold. I finally found the place where I can be fully known, fearlessly, and fully loved by God. What God builds, he builds for his glory. That's true. That he might be praised. But the good news of Psalm 48 is that as we praise and glorify God, he's building us too. And he's not only building us, but he's building us that we might be sent. To be those who march onto Zion. So that in the power of God through the Holy Spirit, the people in this city and around us might say with the psalmist, this is God. I have come into contact with the true and living God through the city of God. Friends, let that be us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your good word to us. We're going to be honest. We're going to pray honestly, Lord. We're not going to hide. And we're going to confess to you that there's a lot of turmoil in the cities around us. And it can shake us. It can make us sad. It can make us angry. It can make us scared. We need your help to thwart the kings. But Lord, you also know what's going on inside. And you know that no other mountains, no other gods, no Baal, no demands, no religion can save us. We need the personal presence and protection of the God who loves with steadfast love. The God who is praiseworthy because he has given up his life on the cross that we might have life forever. So Lord, would you hear our prayer and would you help us, the church, to sing this song, to sing it boldly, to sing it as we come to this table knowing that the city you are building is also the city you are feeding. You are feeding us that we might be strong in your grace and promises so that we have anything to give as we go out to build. Do that now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.